This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. If we told you tomorrow that elk black bear and bighorn sheep were next, would you speak up? Wildlife needs to be managed by science and not by emotion. And you don't have to be a hunter to take part in this movement. You just have to want sound management of our wildlife in BC. Go to wildsheepsociety.com slash act now to use your voice and demand that BC not use our wildlife as pawns in a game of social management. Act now. Or the things that you love could be next. Steve-o, buddy, how are you? Long time no see, my friend. How you been? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, so where has Talk Is Sheep been? And uh, so just a really quick and dirty, um, we had a great uh, chat um, with Craig Stolle from Artistic Wildlife, and uh, uh, it was awesome, fantastic time, really informative, and we had some audio issues. So um, we lost that one, and then uh, we've had a couple weeks here where Steve and I, mostly me, has been busy, but we've been uh, just a little behind. So yeah, it's been a few weeks. Um, we haven't given up on you. We, you know, we've been really trying hard to do a weekly one. So we're a few weeks behind. The good news is, is a great episode today with a fantastic guy. Uh, we had Donald C. Martin on the call. He's um, president of California Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, director of guiding for Ultima Thule out of Alaska. Very experienced uh, sheep hunter, experienced guide, uh, winner of the uh, Dalziel Award, the Guiding Award for the Wild Sheep Foundation. So, uh, great call today with uh, mm-hmm. Don. Lots of laughs and always entertaining listening to Donald talk. So, yeah, uh, just yeah. For a those, great he, show. For those that might not recognize the name, we also know him as Hollywood. He was our guest speaker for the uh, the, the the virtual event we just had for the Wild Sheep Society. So you might know him from that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, great, great uh, session with Dawn and uh, really enjoyed that chat. Learned lots about what's going on in California now. Some of the issues, uh, they had a black bear situation, kind of what we're dealing with here now with BC. Um, so just a, a really good chat and good to hear some of the success stories out of California. You know, wild sheep are doing well in the landscape. You know, there's there's a lot of work to be done, but we've made some pretty serious inroads mm-hmm. all across the landscapes in Western North America and and it's good to hear that California is is doing well as as well. So yeah, it, it was also inspiring to hear that uh, the situation they faced with the black bears they they turned it over. So it shows what we're doing up here can work if we uh, I'll I'll push back. So let's hope that happens. Absolutely. Um, so uh, just a, a reminder for our, our listeners is that we have a membership drive going on right now. Check us out, Wild Sheep Society. Uh, website and get all the info there uh 
great sponsorship through Kuyu, uh, Don Stevenson and Yeti, um, three great giveaways there for that. Mm-hmm. So, um, opportunity to, to upgrade your membership, maybe buy a one year, three year life Monarch. It's all there and you get some chances to win. Um, pretty cool opportunity for sure. So don't miss out on that. Absolutely. So, uh, with that, uh, this is a bit of a longer chat with Dawn. Uh, great one. You're going to enjoy it. Uh, we'll be off and running to episode 28 and we'll be back to you very shortly. We got another one in the, the pipe here that you're going to really enjoy as well. We're not going to spoil it, but, uh, yeah, we got a couple uh, coming, a couple good yeah, ones. It's, it's good. So episode 28, Donald C. Martin, enjoy Hollywood. Donald C. Martin. How's it going, buddy? It's good. Excellent. Good to be with you guys. And thank you for the invite and a chance to talk. I'm, I'm excited. I don't recognize uh, you without the hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That was the goal all along. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so you coming to us from the great state of Alaska, California. Where are you at in the world right now? Uh, currently, uh, I'm down in California. I'm kind of in the uh, bass fishing phase of my, uh, my year. So uh, that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. Life's all about bass fishing. Right on. So, Don, you know, in the wild sheep world, you don't need much of an introduction, but there are probably a few people out there that don't know you too well. Um, and every time I hear your story, it's different, it's exciting, and it's fun. Um, and so who in the hell is Donald C. Martin? Let's let's start from uh, the beginning and, and uh, give us the five-minute version of uh, Donald C. Martin, a.k.a. Hollywood. Five-minute version. Okay. Uh, so I like to characterize myself as um, a regular guy. I, I often characterize myself on stage or when I give talks as a farm boy from Madera, California. Just a regular kid, grew up hunting and fishing like a lot of us. And uh, I started tournament bass fishing at a, at a young age and, uh, and, and did quite a bit of hunting at a, at a young age and uh, was lucky enough to have opportunities, you know, after college uh, to roll right into the guide industry straight out of college. Just didn't have a lot of didn't have a lot on my plate. I was working construction at the time and got an opportunity to go to Alaska and apprentice and uh, changed my life, life-changing experience. And, uh, and I owe a great big, huge uh, debt of gratitude to uh, Walter Chuck, former president of Oregon Finaz. He, he hung his name out there, took a chance on me, and he recommend, recommended me to the outfitter. He basically said, look, the, you know, this, you need to look at this guy. He's, you know, he can be a good fit for you and uh, got my foot in the door and kind of never looked back. Just uh, once I saw the frontier in Alaska, uh, changed my life, you know, and uh, started out as a fish guide, rotated into the hunting side of it. Once I got all my accrued hours, days in the field, Coast Guard license, uh, there's a lot of boxes to check. Alaska is a great state in the sense that they really do um, they really do enforce regulations about guiding. You just don't, it's not like California, California, you fill out a one page form and you're magically a guide. Uh, Alaska is a process, uh, you know, and, and it's a couple years to get your assistant license, a minimum of three more years to get your registered guide license. 
and another 12 years uh, if you want to upgrade to master guide. So uh, it's a real process and, and it's good because you come up through the program uh, and you do all the grunt work first, uh, which weeds out the people that think they want to be guides. But once you pack a moose out of a swamp or you butcher a moose in the water, you really find out who wants to be a guide. Uh, so it's a good process and it was good for me and it's been a good life. And uh, the, the Hollywood thing comes from uh, the fact that I graduated from Humboldt State University with a degree in film and theater. Uh, I've always been an actor. I've always been on stage from the time I was a little kid. And uh, that just kind of grew and developed. And I met my agent in Los Angeles. He was a fly fisherman. And it just kind of came up like, what do you do when you're not guiding? And I said, well, you know, I'm an actor and I'm got my degree in film production. And he said, really? He says, well, I'm an agent. You should come to L.A. and we'll give you a shot. And so I did. And um, and I, I got some positive feedback right off the bat, was really encouraging, did some national TV commercials, uh, did some small movies, uh, no, nothing really breakthrough. And really, it was because I was my own worst enemy because I had this other life. I had this life in Alaska. I had this guide life. Um, that was every fall you had to answer the siren song and go to the mountain. And the people in Los Angeles, uh, you've heard me say before from the stage, they thought I was messed up on drugs because I just dropped off the face of the earth. I don't answer the phone. There's no emails. I just, I vanish. They, they, they thought I was in rehab somewhere. Um, and then I'd come back from Alaska and say, no, I work in Alaska. And the, the people in L.A. couldn't believe I worked in Alaska and the people in Alaska couldn't believe that I've worked in the entertainment industry. So that went on for a few years. Um, and then I just I had this epiphany, you know, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, that really hunting and dealing with my customers and clients and spending quality time with people, having those intimate, really intense experiences, you know, sheep and moose and bears and miserable weather it it, it really uh it, it was more fulfilling for me than pursuing what i was doing in the entertainment industry so i kind of just went full bore towards the guide side of the business and uh, expanded on opportunities there um got involved with a safari company in south africa produced some videos for them pro uh, promotional videos did a bunch of hunting in africa um, got involved guiding in Sonora, Mexico. I guided for 11 years um, down there out of Hermosillo. Great time. It's a wonderful experience for me. And um, yeah, it just became a thing. And then uh, around 2004, I decided I really wanted to get in the sheep game. I, I thought that was going to be, uh, that was the, the best way to take my career to the next level was to expand into mountain game uh, because I had really built a reputation on brown bears and moose. And so when I made that commitment, I really didn't know what kind of commitment I was making, but um, you know, it changed my life. I, I killed my, I killed a doll sheep for myself. I was able to guide a few people in the Alaska range. And in the meantime, uh, I did some video work on a, on a series called Cub Driver, uh, all about super cubs and light sport aircraft, produced a couple of DVDs that were very popular. And my business partner, Lonnie Habersetzer, arguably one of the finest bush pilots 
in the world, uh, had developed a, a working relationship with Paul Claus at Ultima Thule, and and he had recommended me to Paul, and Paul invited me out uh, for a probationary season at Ultima Thule. This is 10 years ago, and that was a dynamic, dramatic change for me uh, to leave sheep hunting in the Alaska range and guiding in the mid-Mulchatna region for bears and moose and going to the complete eastern side of Alaska, Yukon border, right up against the Kluwani. Now I'm suddenly in the world's best concession for doll sheep. Um, again, life-changing experience uh, because of a recommendation of a friend, Lonnie Habersetzer. And uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was kind of the catalyst for all the dominoes that fell afterward that subsequently really expanded people's knowledge of me and uh, a gross expansion of clients, uh, especially in the sheep community, started knocking down some big sheep and and then all of a sudden a few years go by and, and one guy to the year, again, life-changing opportunity. And, uh, and now here we are, you know, and I, I'm trying to leverage the reputation that I've built over the last 26 years in the business to do good for wildlife and for conservation and to entertain people and um, help people along, make them a better hunter, make them laugh along the way and, uh, and just have fun with it. And, uh, and now it's pretty much all I do. I guide full time. I don't have a side gig anymore um, outside of fish guiding. I fish a few tournaments, but there's no money in it for me because I'm just not that good. Uh, <laughs> but, but I have a lot of fun doing it because that was my real passion. And, and, you know, there was a time when I thought I was going to be a professional bass angler, but I grew up at a time when there was not a high school national championship or a collegiate national champion. There was no such thing as a full ride scholarship to Clemson to bass fish like there is now. So we, we live in a different time in a different world, but, uh, but ultimately here I am and it's been a great journey and I've met a lot of really magnificent people along the way, especially through Wild Sheep Foundation. Awesome, Don. Yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of things I want to touch on there. And, um, you know, you mentioned Guide of the Year. So tell us about that. Now, this is in reference to Wild Sheep Foundation, the GCF Dalziel Award. Is that correct? Um, and what does that entail? Yeah, the GCF Dalziel Award, uh, it's awarded annually and... Uh, it's uh, there's a kind of a whole list of criteria uh, standards uh, and it's a cumulative award. The award is uh, the members of the organization vote for nomination. The uh, top uh, vote tally or whatever, because it is cumulative year to year. So you kind of build up to it over a career. Um, it goes to the awards committee. They vet you, make sure you don't have a bunch of skeletons in your closet somewhere. And, uh, and they make the final decision. But it's, it is a kind of a grassroots award. It does come from the membership. And, and so I stress now having won it and seeing how it's changed my life and, and, some, and the lives of some of the other winners since then. Um, I tell people, you know, if, if you go on a sheep hunt with somebody and, and you just have the most spectacular experience of your life, uh, you need to vote, you need to nominate, be involved, because it's it's the membership that drives that award. And, and it is based on a on a career and, and really big picture. 
there are so many more people out there in the sheep industry, probably more deserving than I, but I came from a, a hugely broad background of guiding. Uh, and I've been in the business, like I said, 26 years now. I've guided 12 North American big, big game species. So I have this huge spectrum of experience. You know, if you think about caribou, you're not going to think about me, but I've guided more caribou than any other species because that's what I started out doing. I've guided more mule deer than I have sheep, but nobody associates me with desert mule deer or Sonora mule deer. But, you know, uh, had a great time down in Sonora for a long time, killed a lot of deer. Uh, great time. Loved it. Absolutely loved Sonora. And, uh, but yet the, the, the sheep is suddenly what put me on people's radar. And I really, there was, again, all, all the good in my life is because of the people around me. And I work hard to take care of my people and my friends. And, uh, and when the time come, I believe it was Adam Casagrande. Uh, he's on the board of directors for California, lives in Idaho now. I, I think he basically was the catalyst. And um, when nominations came out in 2017, I think he sent out a group email to everybody that had ever hunted with me and said, hey, isn't it about time our buddy Hollywood wins this thing? And so it, there was just kind of a, a mass of votes that came in and kind of propelled me to the to the top of the list. And I made it through the vetting committee committee because I, I, you know, I didn't have any hard strikes against me in any way, shape or form. And uh, and 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 I won the award. And, it, and like I said, it was uh, it was spectacular. And I was so. I, I didn't even think I was eligible to tell you the truth, because I was I had been led to believe somebody had suggested that I was going to win it in 2017. And then I didn't. And so I kind of thought, you know what, technically, I, I'm not even sure I'm eligible. And then so when I won in 18, it was a, a huge surprise. And I was just so emotionally overwhelmed. I just I gave this really impassioned speech about, you know, about the industry and about uh, about conservation and about women and about the positive impact that the people and the Sheep Foundation have had on my life. And, and I continue to try to preach that message, especially to younger people, uh, that, you know, you, you have no idea the impact that the relationships that you build and foster at Sheep Show, at Sheep Week, and in Wild Sheep Foundation are going to have on your life. And, and, uh, and that's one of the best things about the sheep community. And it's one of the best, it's the reason why sheep, sheep show is the best show is because of the people, the quality of the people there. And there's a mutual respect at sheep show that you don't see at other shows because everybody walking the aisles, you know, they're, they understand what it takes to get the job done in terms of climbing mountains, suffering, enduring bad weather, spending 48 hours in a tent, uh snuggled up to a six foot seven linebacker out of south carolina um you you just you know it it, it just it's it's a great environment especially for young people to come up in that community whether they've killed a sheep or not 
but at least they aspire to be a sheep hunter. And, and I think maybe that's one of the most positive things about our community is encouraging people to set those goals that they don't think are possible. You know, I never thought I'd kill a sheep. I never thought I'd hunt Africa. I never thought I'd go to Asia or hunt Europe. Uh, but yet I've done all these things because of the relationships I've built with the people that are around me. And I've, I've worked on fostering those relationships, trying to be a, a good person and a good friend, a good steward of wildlife um and and trying to be a diplomat you know uh aspiring to be my father a man with no enemies you know i've failed i mean gee there's i can i can write you a long list of people who hate my guts uh, me too. for one reason or another but <laughs> but you know it, it, it there's this thing uh i think dr wayne dwyer talks about if you put good in the into the universe the good will come back to you and and so that's that's what I've been trying to do my whole career. And, and really, I tell people when I started guiding, I was guiding for the wrong reasons. You know, I was guiding for me. It was a selfish endeavor. I wanted to have those experiences. I wanted to kill moose. I wanted to kill brown bear, but I couldn't afford it. So I live vicariously through my people. And somewhere along the way, I'm going to say about six or seven years into the process, of maturing as a guide where suddenly I had developed some, some proficiency and was starting to develop a reputation. Um, I suddenly realized that the more I made it about my client and the less I made it about me, the more satisfying it and rewarding it was for the client, but more so I found a lot more satisfaction in what I was doing as a guide, you know, made me a better person. And, and that's uh, now I, I joke with people. I just tell them, yeah, no, I'm best friend for hire. I'm best friend for 10 days. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> that's what I do. Tell jokes, give rah-rah speeches, make mountain house meals, get up early, make coffee. Um, just all I do is uh, dot I's, cross T's, and help complete that person, fill in the gaps for that person to get them over the hump and make them successful whatever their endeavor is, it doesn't matter. Moose, brown bear, grizzly, bison, mule deer, what, whatever, whatever it takes, you know, and, and have fun doing it. Yeah. Right on Don. So I just want to just go back to your uh, sheep show speech. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I'd heard you speak before. I've heard you speak many times since, and uh, that by far, there's no acceptance speech in the world. I've ever seen that quality that you gave. And it was from the heart it was impassioned and I laughed my ass off. Um, and you know, sheep show for me that night was, uh, that made my sheep show that week. Uh, it was just phenomenal, such a great speech and, um, and hilarious too. So, uh, kudos to you. It was, it was, uh, you know, that, that, that was a memorable experience actually. Um, and you know, every, every now, whenever I get a chance to hear you speak, I, I always tune in cause it's, uh, it's always going to be a good time. And that kind of set the stage for me was that speech at Sheep Show. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. That uh, it was for me, it was a very. Like I said, I was emotionally overwhelmed and it was a very organic experience. Um, you know, I kind of got lost in the middle of my speech. I had to take a breath and kind of like, OK, kid, get back on message. Uh, and 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 just you know finish out strong and be be humble and be thankful and uh 
you know, because uh, it, the, the byproduct of that award is, um, you know, Bob and Arlene Hansen sponsor it. Um, and, and it's a beautiful bronze and it, it, it is a really, it's, it, it's, it's a pinnacle as in the guide industry, as far as I'm concerned. And I, I really didn't understand that until a couple of weeks later, I was at a different show and, and I was hanging out with Pat Garrett and he introduced somebody to me. Um, and when he introduced me, he said, this is Donald C. Martin. He just won the most prestigious award in the guide industry and i was like oh i wasn't thinking of it in those terms but now that it i'm hearing it out loud yeah yeah because it it comes from the members it comes from personal experience and interaction with people these again this comes back to this thing about building relationships and then suddenly years decades later somebody your friend is hanging their name out there and saying, yes, this is the guy. And, and, and so that, that was very enlightening for me. So I, I appreciate it all the more. And Kuyu sponsors the awards, closest thing to a sponsor I've ever had. And, uh, and I, they, they give away a, a gear package and then they sponsor you to go on a hunt in Montana. Spectacular hunt on probably one of the greatest pieces of property, the CA Ranch. Climbing Arrow Outfitters, Montana, north of Bozeman. Phenomenal piece of ground. I just killed the biggest elk of my life. Uh, great, great experience. And so I have to thank Kuyu. Um, everybody over at Kuyu, uh, Brendan Burns has been a good friend. And I, I have a, a lot of friends over there that have been very supportive. So uh, I always try to do my best to support Kuyu and, and give back to them because they they really do contribute and give to the community. Yeah, right on. And and the, the sheep hunting world too, right? They're a huge mm -hmm. supporter and big believer in conservation as well. So, um, Don, one thing you mentioned earlier, you talked about Sheep Week and the sheep family and, and encouraging young people to get involved in wild sheep and, and, and the conservation angle. Um, and get involved in, as a sheep hunter too. So one of the things that we hear, uh, you've heard it, I've heard it, is, oh, well, sheep hunting's a rich man's game. Um, what, how do you kind of, uh, you know, approach that? And what do you say to these these young people that are interested, but have this perception that, no, no, it's for the wealthy elite, that sort of stuff. Um, how do you how do you talk to them about that and, and kind of dispel that myth? Well, the, the first thing is, uh, Everybody who has even a slight inkling in wanting to hunt sheep, uh, they've got to get involved with this draw process and they have to do it when they're young. They have to do it sooner rather than later and start building points. And I think if, if we instill in our young people a true appreciation of the North American conservation model and they understand how it works, you know, Pittman Robertson funds, uh, state funds, uh, making that contribution every year to a state that in all likelihood, you're not going to hunt. Uh, they start to understand where those dollars go and that it, it's, it's good for wildlife for you to make this investment in potential opportunity, even if that opportunity is slim. You've got to look at it in the long haul perspective. Also, get involved with Wild Sheep Foundation. They're, every chapter gives away a sheep hunt. Yes, it costs money. 
But again, it all comes back to conservation and knowing where your dollars go. Because we can all blow a hundred bucks pretty easy, you know, um, buying stuff that we don't really need at the grocery store. Yeah, I like potato chips as much as the next guy, but they're expensive. You know, breakfast cereal, my God, five bucks a box, six bucks a box. I, If you know where your money's going on the conservation side, it's like, I'd feel better about throwing a hundred dollars at Wild Sheep Society of BC or Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society or Cal Wild Sheep or Oregon Fanaz or Idaho Wild Sheep, East Coast chapter, Midwest, uh, Iowa. I mean, I'm, I'm a life member of, I think, eight or nine chapters. Um, you know, you know where your money's going to go and you're in the hat. You have a chance. You got to, you know, you got to be in it to win it. Um, and also plan long term for sheep, which might mean you set up a whole separate account and you start doing 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, whatever you can afford. Maybe you have to get a side hustle on to make some extra cash to make this a thing. Uh, and maybe don't don't shoot for the moon right off the bat. There's a bunch of goat species that are way more affordable where you can have a sheep experience for a mountain goat price. And I'm not talking about a mountain goat with the top tier premier guys that are known for world class goats and they're getting sheep hunt prices for a goat. There's a lot of affordable goat hunts out there. There's a lot of affordable Ibex opportunities out there. Everybody kind of has a individual responsibility to, you know, be their own hustler, you know. Um, and I think uh, Brendan Burns talked about this one time at Mountain Academy a couple years ago about there are ways to finagle and play the system. And it has a lot to do with knowing people and networking and being able to travel on short notice and being willing to say yes. And I have another very good friend that has told me many times that when it comes to sheep hunting, yes, it's expensive, but an individual need only have the will to commit and commit to this idea, I am gonna do this thing. And it might take five years, it might take 10 years, but I'm gonna do this thing. And in the meantime, I'm gonna put in for draws, I'm gonna buy a few raffle tickets and support Wild Sheep Foundation, support conservation, but I'm going to have a plan and I'm going to start talking to people. What do I have to do? Do I have to go work in Canada for three years for free to earn a sheep hunt? Do I have to go to Alaska and be, I killed my sheep because I was a guide. I was already there. I couldn't afford it, but I was already there. And, and I, I basically, I knew I wanted to kill a sheep and I knew the only way I could do it is if I encouraged my outfitter at the time that we get into the sheep game. And that when I became a registered guide, the first three areas I put on my license were sheep areas. And so the first hunts I ever contracted as a guide were sheep hunts. And, and, and it was a hundred mile super cub flight to even get to the mountains. So we were, you know, we were stretching it out, but it was something I wanted to do. It was a goal. And, and that's what I tell young people is you need to just set a goal have a plan and then stick to the plan, you know, and then somewhere along the way, it, it, something's going to give, you're going to, you're either going to draw a permit, you're going to win a raffle, you're going to meet somebody, 
Uh, and like I said, you got to get on your own unique hustle. I got a lot of opportunities because I knew how to run video camera. And I, I went to Asia because I was a cameraman. And that's how I killed my Ibex in Tajikistan is I went, I filmed a Marco Polo sheep hunt. And then that opportunity, and I, we were already there. And that opportunity suddenly became a thing. And I, I shot a mid-Asian Ibex. And, um, you know, and, and then I went a second. I've been to Tajikistan twice. Both. So you, you've got to find a way. You've got to find a way to hustle and work the system and massage those relationships and just take care of the people around you. And and it's shocking the opportunities that suddenly present themselves. You know, I should have already killed my desert bighorn, but I, it's just I didn't have this kind of slush fund set off to the side for emergency desert bighorn hunt. Go in three days. It's twenty five thousand only. I've turned guys on to hunts for desert bighorns for 25 grand and they've gone down and shot a, a ram in Mexico, free range ram in Mexico, 25,000 shoot a ram in the high one sixties. That's, that's a pretty smoking deal in this day and age, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, with COVID now too, there are these opportunities popping out, right? Guys are, are getting some cancellation hunts and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and, and some of the outfitters are struggling a little bit because they can't get clients in camp. So there's some opportunities there, unfortunately, for the outfitting industry. But it's it's a reality, right? So absolutely. And and also when you start looking at sheep opportunities, you know, it, it, it might you might have to change jobs. You might have to change the state you live in. You might have to dramatically change your life if suddenly that becomes a priority. I live in a state where in a good year we give away 29 permits but you know i can move two and a half hours away and be in a state that gives away 250 permits you know or that's kind of that's an exaggeration but the point is there's i could take my points as a non-resident move there and draw a permit you know so it, you have to add and it's that's why i say if you develop this sheep fever at a young age it's good and bad but you're at least you've kind of got a plan and if you're young and single and flexible you've got a lot of opportunities yes you can become a guide yes you can move to canada you can move to a better state that has opportunity you can work as an agent you know i know there's a lot of outfitters that you book them 10 guys they'll they'll take you on a sheep hunt you know again it, it's finding finding what works for you to generate opportunity and it doesn't right on, have right to be on. it doesn't have to be about money because i've i've hunted all over the world i've never made more than 55 grand in a year so and that was back when the dot-com money was big you know so right yeah so don uh let's let's just look at your situation talk us through a typical year for you so you say you're bass fishing right now uh you're you're in your bass phase um, talk us through the months on what your guiding life looks like. And then that's going to lead us to the conservation thing. Cause I know in the off season, that's a big part of your life too. So let's talk about what you do throughout the year. What is it? The year timeline starting say May of 2021. What does that look like for the next year for you? Okay. So if, if we're starting off in May, okay, that's my bass fishing time of year. I'm here in California. Um, I am a registered fishing guide. Um, I do a bit of guiding on the California Delta. I do, uh, I dabble in some of the pro tournaments uh, here in, in California. Um, that's pretty much kind of what my focus is. May, June, 
and July. On top of that, when I'm not focused on fishing or that sort of thing, uh, I'm still doing correspondence with hunters. I'm doing, uh, you know, equipment co uh, correspondence and having conversations with all of my upcoming hunters, scheduling flights and all of that stuff, working with them, making sure that, you know, we're all on the same page about what day they have to show up, which hotel I want them to try to stay at and walking them through the process so that my hunters come August are fully prepared that there's there's not going to be any big red flags or surprises so that's i'm finalizing my fall season the through the summer while i'm doing a, a bit of fish guiding maybe fishing a tournament or two and then i leave for alaska in july and so i go up and we start our program our summer program at the lodge is primarily ecotourism we are probably one of the well, I won't say probably. I'll just I'll say we're the top ecotourist destination in Wrangell St. Elias National Park. Um, a lot of our clientele is foreign, um, but they come to see the park. And the best way to see it is outfit like Ultima Thule. And so when I get there in July, I'm kind of ramping up all of those facilities and infrastructure necessary to run the hunting program because I'm only in charge of the hunting program. I'm director of hunting operations. So I get there with my guide staff and we start ramping up. And, you know, that's everything from inventory and how much freeze dried food we have, cleaning out the skinning shed and blowing out, you know, a whole season worth of glacier dust and prepping our areas to process meat, and process trophies and, uh, and, and, and scout and fly around. And, uh, you know, Paul is very good about we develop a catalog of sheep. We, we try to photograph the bulk of the sheep in our concessions if possible so that we, we know what we got to work with. We know how many rams. We know the quality of the rams. We can kind of scroll through photos and we, we start putting together a game plan for the whole season based on the client's experience, the physical fitness level, what they're capable of, where we can take them uh, safely. Um, and then as we get into August, sheep season opens. And we're just hardcore, nothing but sheep until about September 20th. Uh, as we get into September, we do do some combo hunts. Uh, we, there's a couple of mountain goats usually in there. Somebody will maybe add a moose. Uh, bison opens on September 3rd. So starting about then, we do some drop-off hunts for those two individuals that are lucky enough to draw the Chitna River bison permit. And inevitably, we almost always guide the governor's tag for bison for state of Alaska, which is also a Chitna River permit. And so we that gets us through September 20. We roll straight into mountain goats after mountain goats and grizzlies after sheep and moose close. And we do a couple of uh, goat hunts. We do about uh, we're there three weeks for goats and grizzly. By then, the ecotourism part of the business is shut down. We're winterizing the camp. We're not really set up for full winter operations there. And so uh, we're usually out of there the second week of October. The hunting program's pretty well wrapped up. I immediately come back to California. I go straight down to Monterey where I guide for tule elk. And I generally do a tule elk bull hunt in the end of October. And after that, I take November off for myself. So I have the month of November to try to squeeze in a hunt for myself. I used to go to Kansas every other year to bull hunt whitetails. 
Um, then I started expanding my horizons and, and now it's mostly about what I can draw. Uh, there's a lot of good late season archery hunts in November across Western US. Uh, so I, I hunt for myself in November. December, I wrap up my tule elk hunts. I have another bull hunt that I do and a couple of cow hunts. If we have any tule elk cow permits uh, through the holiday, uh, tags are good till December 31st. Uh, and there have been days where I've killed tule elk cows with hunters on December 31st, last day of the season. <laughs> and then uh, Happy New Year, and we're getting ready for sheep show. And we go straight into trade show season. And typically I will do, um, I'll do sheep show and I will do, uh, often do one additional show, but sheep show is my primary show. And, and we pretty much are at a point now that we only have to do sheep show. Our waiting list is so extensive that we don't need to do a show outside of sheep show, but we do make an appearance at other shows to try to support them and be supportive of our, of our friends that are supportive of those other organizations. Um, and, uh, and so that kind of gets me into February. And then usually once I'm, I'm into February, it's all going to be about wild sheep chapter dinner season. And I do a lot of travel. I go to a lot of events and I've been very fortunate to have been asked to host many events. Um, you know, even in December, there's an event I host, uh, the Alaska professional hunters association event. Um, and then, you know, whatever's on my schedule, if, if I'm available and they want me to work with the chapter, anything I can do to help the chapters, um, I'm pretty flexible. I pretty much dedicate the whole spring to wild sheep chapter events. Our event, California, I'm the, currently I'm the president of California wild uh, sheep foundation, co-chair of the fundraising committee. And uh, we throw our party in uh, either end of April or first week of May. So generally that keeps me super busy going into May. I do do some spring turkey hunts. I guide a few hunters every spring. I try to do some youth hunters in the spring uh, to get more young people involved with hunting. Turkey hunting is a people too. Uh, kind of a almost a controlled environment if the birds are cooperative because you're calling a bird to a set location. Um, so, and in the blind. So if the, if the kid is fidgety or, you know, or nervous or we, we can get away with a lot more than just running and gunning and leaning up against a tree. Um, so that's, and that's been a really positive experience. And if we're, if we're really lucky, we can get a turkey killed. And then in the course of the same hunt, we can often kill a wild pig. Um, which is just great for young people to have that experience to that, that are that are so drastically different in the course of a single day sometimes well kill a turkey in the morning you know calling them in and learning that whole process of how to hunt turkeys and i and i try to i try to walk them through it you know i try to educate them and, and make them understand what, what we're doing why we're doing it what works what doesn't work and you know if i set up and call and it doesn't work out i can kind of argue and say well this is why it didn't work out or whatever but then to turn around and then do a spot and stalk hunt on pigs in the evening and kill a hog uh, it's just it's a it's a well-rounded experience and then they learn this whole process of how to turn animals, which is it's really important it's a skill set that a lot of young people uh, are not learning these days because of the increased urbanization of both the United States and Canada. 
everybody lives in town anymore and they're not exposed to the rural lifestyle of hunting and fishing and domesticated livestock that you raise and eventually slaughter and having a big garden and growing your own food. These kids really know they need to know where their food comes from, but more importantly, they need to know how it goes from being a living, breathing animal to a pork chop or a, a, a cheeseburger. And, and, and then they start to appreciate it a lot more and they understand the responsibility that goes along with taking life to sustain life. And so, and we do that in the spring. And then, like I said, that gets us back to May. And then uh, I'm mostly about fishing and prepping my hunters for the following fall. Grizzly right hunting. on. I, I've, I've heard of that. What's that? What's that? <laughs> grizzly hunting. I've heard of that. It, what's that about? <laughs> the, the, the grizzly bears? Yeah. It's, that's that a whole is, other conversation. That's here. a whole, yeah, we could burn up two hours just talking about grizzly bears. I mean, the Absolutely difference between... Good. The difference between grizzly bears and brown bears was a yep. shocking experience for me. I bet. Grizzly, I bet. Especially in the park. Grizzly bears are rude and mean. Yes. And mm -hmm. I, I've had more bears try to kill me in the last 10 years than my first 16 combined. You know, it, it's just <laughs> brown bears are afraid of people. They run. Grizzly bears, they got to work care. harder for their groceries. They're, yep. They know they've got to kill stuff. That's right. It, yeah. And I shouldn't <laughs> discount brown bears. There's no shortage of people who've had really traumatic close calls uh, with brown bears. Trust me. But I, uh, for me personally, when I moved to the Wrangles, like the first year, I got charged the first year I was there. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. So <laughs> wow. good times. Uh, cool. <laughs> good times. So Don, um, so that let's let's uh, shift now to the conservation uh, discussion. So, president of uh, California Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, huge supporter of all these chapter affiliates, uh, life member across the gamut. Uh, you know, eight chapters, nine chapters, whatever you mentioned there. So let's let's just jump actually right into California. What's what's going on in California? Your chapter president there. What's on the horizon? How are sheep doing? What's happening in California at the chapter level uh, with wild sheep? Well, you know, we have a we have a program that we started a few years ago. It was uh, part of a uh, a brainchild of uh, Mike Burrell and and some of the other founding members uh, called Give a Lamb a Drink, and we work in coordination with our sister affiliate organization down in Southern California, Society for the Conservation of Bighorn Sheep. Um, who are the actual boots on the ground building the drinker project team. And they're a basically a water for wildlife organization. We operate as a fundraiser to drive those projects. And uh, over the years, we have developed a really good relationship with United States Marine Corps. And we put in quite a few drinkers on the air ground combat center at 29 Palms to try to encourage sheep to cross between these mountain ranges that we know based on some you know dna data from clint epps at oregon state university he's just done an, an, an exhaustive amount of dna research that shows that there is this connectivity between mountain ranges and sheep and we know that they cross and then we cross-reference that with some radio telemetry collar data and gps collar data and we know that there are points in which 
you have young rams or ewes that are trying to immigrate to that other mountain range and they reach a point where they kind of peter out and panic and go back. And the reason is because there's lack of water uh, between those mountain ranges. And so uh, the work we've done with the Marine Corps in terms of trying to connect those dots and restore that connectivity between mountain ranges has been very successful. Um, we do a lot of emergency water hauls. Right now we're in another drought, a horrible drought year. This is going to be a very expensive year for us in terms of because we didn't have significant rainfall in the Southern California desert, we are hauling water to some of these existing drinkers uh, that sheep are, they are critical for desert bighorns, uh, not just Nelson eyes, but for peninsular desert bighorns. And so we are doing a lot of emergency water hauls and, um, and the work that these guys do is, is we're talking moving, you know, thousands of gallons and that they'll string a half a mile of fire hose to get the water to the tank in some cases because we constantly face challenges with uh the wilderness act and wilderness boundaries and that we can only truck the water so far and then we somehow have to magically teleport it to the drinker and, and what happens is you have a army small army of volunteers that string a half a mile of fire hose and then we use a couple of water pumps in succession to and some check valves that sort of thing move it up the hill and get it up to the drinker to provide water for wildlife and in emer and in worst case scenario we helicopter the water in to to fill the drinker um so i think you know our goal was to double the number of nelson eyes uh nelson bighorns in in southern california uh because we know in doing so successful conservation will yield expanded hunting opportunity and a lot of people, we get this accusation all the time about, well, you're only trying to conserve sheep so that you can shoot them. It's not entirely untrue, but the, the, the truth is that a successful hunting program is a byproduct of successful conservation. Okay, if we're failing on the conservation side, then there is no, there is no sheep hunting, you know, because we don't have we don't have a sustainable yield that we can take off of that herd that will have zero to no impact on the herd. And I, I think a lot of people are, they misunderstand this fact that when you look at the, you look at the rams that were taken out of the herd, these are often rams that are going to die anyways. They're over the hill. They're not, they, they're done with their lifetime reproductive success. The hunters are targeting specific animals. They're not necessarily taking rams in their prime. They're tending to take older age class rams. A lot of times they've moved out of the cohort. They're done duking it out with the kids. And you've got these big rams off by themselves and, you know, or groups of mature rams, class four rams. And, and those are often the rams that are being taken off. When you see, and I will say this, when you see a young ram get killed in one of our units, that's a person who's come to the horrible realization that they are not a sheep hunter because they'll climb the mountain one time in that southern california desert and then they'll say you show me a ram and i'll shoot it because they're good at, they're shooting the sheep in self-defense they just want to get off the mountain and we have that that happens every year where we have guys that they deer hunt uh and they put in sheep for sheep and they draw it and then they realize this was way more hunt than i was bargaining for 
and they literally shoot the first ram that steps in front of them. They're not being selective. They just they just want out. And uh, and that's you know that's to O'Connor's quote about you're gonna un- you're gonna know if you're a sheep hunter or not. You know you only have to hunt sheep one time. Um, it's it is a it is a it is a brutal litmus test that weeds these guys out in a hurry. And often it's one two three days. And a lot of these guys are weekend hunters anyways. They they've never spent seven days on the mountain or ten days on the mountain or fourteen or twenty one or thirty. That that would be absurd that to them, you know. And and so that occurs. But for the most part, you do see selective harvest. And the rams that we take, uh, especially here in California, uh, traditionally, and we're kind of a sleeper state for really big desert bighorns. Um, a lot of people don't think about it, but it's it's unfortunately there's there's only a couple permits for non-residents that are available, and and so if if we're successful and we can build 90 more drinkers, and that is our goal, and we've we've found a, a bit of a loophole to get away from this bureaucracy called CEQA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act. We think we found a way that we can get around that and we can do these projects for wildlife without going through this horrible, you know, environmental impact statement bureaucracy process that takes years. And then somebody from some eco groovy group that lives in a state somewhere else can suddenly just put an injunction on you and stop your project. and even though it's, you know, it's all volunteer and it's all for the benefit of wildlife. And there's a whole host of curious politics that are unique to California. But tragically, I think you guys in BC are experiencing a lot of that, that that's been ever since the grizzly bear closure up there. You guys are seeing more and more of these urbanites that are forcing their kind of wildlife management ideals on a system not based on wildlife management or wildlife science so that that's the battle that i think all of us are up against but for california the future is bright we're recovering from a couple of disease events um the old dad kelso peak had a serious disease event here years ago this year they are issuing a permit for the unit which is encouraging san gorgonios uh, that unit recovering from a disease event. Uh, we're seeing dramatic expansion in some other units. I think the the, the brightest note uh, that nobody really knows about, although I think a couple issues ago, Wild Sheep Magazine, um, there was an article regarding uh, the Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep herd and the dramatic expansion of that herd. Now, when I started at Humble, there was only there's less than 100 people were talking about that we were going to see Sierra Nevada bighorn go extinct in our lifetime. And they were thinking of all these dramatic ways to try to capture them and move them somewhere to either a huge enclosure or an island or there was all of this out of the box thinking about how do we save these things. Um, but, you know, they came up with a plan, just a dedicated plan that it did include predator control. This was now I'm still I'm talking pre mountain lion protection, you know, which is a a thing unique to California uh, for a lot of people who don't realize in 1991, state of California due to a ballot measure became the biggest mountain lion sanctuary in the world, 
in the world. Okay, it's a special protected status awarded just to mountain lions. And now we not only are the biggest mountain lion sanctuary in the world, arguably we have more mountain lions than anywhere else in the world. Um, that's problematic for bighorn sheep and, and more so for California mule deer and blacktails. Um, so th there's a whole host of other politics I could get into, but I, I, I don't want to. The point being, Sierra Nevada bighorns are now, we went from, let's say in the late 80s, we went from, nine, let's say, 95 animals. And we have 650 of them now. Wow. And awesome. we, are, we are so close to meeting recovery goals that now the conversation has changed from, oh, my God, they're going to go extinct to, okay, they're potentially going to be eligible for delisting uh, in the next eight to 10 years because we have to maintain certain minimum populations over certain habitat units. And then once we meet all that and then we monitor for, there's a five-year monitor period, then we can delist them. And what happens after that, I don't know. I do know that if they issue a fundraising permit for that herd you're, you're gonna you're gonna see a quarter of a million dollars or more get dropped on that tag and that that's money that goes straight to the sheep program that would be a huge shot in the arm uh be the literally the sacrificial ram uh to to to, uh, to help save uh sierra nevada bighorn but at this point th there's going to be some politics involved but I'm just happy that over the 10 years that I've been really involved as uh, on board of directors for California, that we've seen this dramatic expansion of, of the Sierra Nevada Bighorn. It's a great conservation story that just doesn't get a lot of press, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, and with that, Don, would, is that kind of indicative across the state? Have you guys seen growth? That I know you're saying it's stable and they're doing well, but are you seeing generally growth across the state? Um, or is it is it just kind of plugging along type thing? It, you know, it, the the numbers we see we see numbers improving in some areas. We're actually trying to lay the groundwork to open additional hunting units. We're encouraging the Department of Fish and Wildlife to survey mountain ranges that historically have had a lot of sheep and maybe um, maybe kind of went through a bad time, whether it's the chocolates or the chuckwallas. Uh, th there's a number of mountain ranges that have way more desert bighorns than they know about because they just, they don't survey them and they're not priority. And we've got a huge unit um, that has more than 500 desert bighorns in it, but they don't issue any permits because of the politics, because guess what? It butts right up to Los Angeles. And so you, you're going to have, as soon as you open it to public comment period, You've got every blue haired little old lady from Pasadena coming in there saying, well, we don't want anybody hunting in the San Gabriels when, in fact, I, I think they hand out 6000 deer permits for that unit. So it, we're not uh, we're not inventing the wheel here. Hunting already exists in the in the in the San Gabriels. And we originally they didn't try to open it as a unit, you know, when when desert bighorn hunting started in California specifically because of politics and because it was so close to an urban area. But I think there's precedent in other Western states where you have a overlap of user groups 
that have dramatically different politics and feelings about wildlife. Uh, Colorado is a great example. There are units where if you draw a goat tag, you can only hunt during the week. So it lessens your chances of bumping into, you know, weekend hikers who maybe don't approve of big game hunting. So precedent exists where different user groups, say consumers versus non-consumptive users, they can share the space and, and limit the conflict. And, and it's California. There's always going to be conflict. There are people that are going to want to thrust their will and opinion upon others. And, and that's what we see. And that's kind of what we're up, up against uh, because we are a very populous state. There's 34, 35 million, you know, people that we know about. There's probably two or three million people living in the shadows. So uh, we're, we're a great big giant state and we have a lot of politics to navigate. And uh, California is a great big state and we have a tremendous amount of natural resources and public land uh, for people who haven't been here before and don't realize it. You know, we have a whole we have a whole lot of opportunity. We're the only state in the union you can kill all three species of elk. We've got Rockies, Rosies and Tulies all in the same state. Luckily for us, we have all the Tulies, but we're the only state you can get your elk slam in. We have two species of deer, you know, and, and a lot of opportunity year round hunting for pigs. And, uh, it's, and, and our waterfowl hunting is, you know, some of the best in the Western flyway. We're in a magnificent state for black bears. We kill huge black bears here and that's just going to do nothing but, uh, explode black bear populations. We're sitting in the 30, 35,000 black bears right now. Uh, they took the dog hunting away with us, uh, from us. And once, once they took away the dog hunting for bears, annual harvest dropped by 50%. So that's, that's 650 more bears on the mountain every year, half of which are sows, most of which are going to throw twins. It doesn't, you don't have to be a mathematical genius to figure out over the course of a decade or two, we're going to have more bears than deer. You know, that's a law of unintended consequences that people who suddenly thrust themselves into wildlife management, they, they, they don't necessarily see the ramifications of what they're doing when they when they proceed from an emotion-based argument versus a science-based argument well you set us up pretty much uh for exactly what we're dealing with here in bc but we won't delve into that today so um yeah no and and you guys recently just had um i guess uh, there's a bit of a success story there where uh, there was, I think there, it was a petition or uh, a government act where they were asking to to change the regulation around bear hunting and uh, conservationists and hunters in California stood up and, and spoke their, their piece and that changed um, that mm -hmm. policy there. So can you touch on that briefly, Don? Or? Yeah, so, you know, that, that was an interesting uh, situation, but it, it completely characterizes... Um, all of us here in California that are wildlife enthusiasts and hunters and sportsmen, it is the perfect characterization of what we're up against. You had two representatives that throw a bill out there, potentially, one from San Francisco, the other from Los Angeles, neither of whom really have to live in an environment or live or deal with bears in any great numbers. And there are bears in the Los Angeles National Forest. It probably surprises a lot of people that there is such a thing as the Los Angeles National Forest, but it's 
there's a lot of big open ground down there and they do have bears. But when you have people from the two major urban areas of the state introduce a bill that's going to put an end to bear hunting, um, you know, we're a state, we have 52 counties uh, and the most of the eastern counties and northern counties have really high bear densities and and the the human bear conflict is at an all-time high in areas where everybody wants to have a summer cabin you know up out of tahoe somewhere or up in in northern california somewhere and and it just human black bear conflict really is at at an all-time high um we have a lot of problem bears and and so we waged a very aggressive social media campaign to try to you know enlighten people about what was going on what our situation was in terms of this was legislation not based on science we we've got more than 30,000 bears and and a wildly you know almost exponential population growth for those bears and and that this was not going to do the bears any good wasn't going to do the environment any good and at the end of the day some government agency was going to have to go kill these bears anyways and and so i think once we kind of made sportsmen aware that this was happening uh, there was tremendous pushback and and it the legislation was withdrawn in two days um, because as soon as these two representatives were outed um, that their offices just got a deluge of calls and emails and the, the petition numbers were awesome. So tremendous response from the sportsman's community. Uh, and I, and I tell people, you know, you don't have to live in California to have an opinion about California bears. All you have to do is say, you know, I hope to hunt California one day, or I have hunted California once upon a time. Um, if you're actively hunting and, you know, uh, and you are purchasing uh, a hunting license or applying for points in a state, you have an opinion. And I think even and, and that becomes a point of conflict where you, you run into, say, resident, non-resident conflict over opportunity. But yet you, you have this whole other group of people investing in your wildlife management and conservation and you need to kind of understand that we're all on the same team, whether you live here or not. And that's why when you asked me to speak for um, the Wild Sheep Society, I, I, you know, I wanted to touch on the point that, you know, Americans should have a say in British Columbian wildlife management because we invest a lot in wildlife management in BC. We support a lot of jobs. We support a lot of indigenous people and rural communities. Um, we buy a lot of goods and services. Um, and and we, we want what's best for BC and BC wildlife and BC guides and outfitters and businesses and jobs and indigenous people. So, you know, I wouldn't discourage anyone from, you know, being vocal. Uh, you're going to get some pushback on in some cases, and there's always going to be a bit of conflict about uh, and guys that say not in my backyard or, you know, it's uh, uh, Canadians first and screw those Yanks, um, you know, and I understand that, you know, uh, but 
we're at a point, I think, in our in both of our nation's history, we live in very curious times, and we really need to demonstrate uh, greater solidarity going forward to support one another, to support the culture and the lifestyle and the belief system that we all love, um, and and to manage wildlife in a manner that that yes benefits our our culture and lifestyle and belief system, but also provides opportunity for non-consumptive users to enjoy and see wildlife. Uh, and I, I think we can balance that. Um, we just need to be better about the, the manner in which we market ourselves to the non-consumptive wildlife uh, enthusiast. Uh, and sometimes that can be very difficult because they've made up their minds. They have decision, they've made a decision and they will not be convinced. Um, but if you always try to proceed from science-based management and not get emotional, um, and not get worked up about, ah, you're, you're destroying my entire culture and belief system. You know, uh, I, I, I think at least there's hope, you know, there's always hope. Um, and, and that, that's why I always try to be as diplomatic as possible when we, when we talk about big game hunting, because I understand, I mean, we're killing animals. It, it's going to elicit a very visceral response from people who do not kill animals. And then people who are, let's say, even more extreme, let's say vegetarian or, or vegan, now that, that's a belief system that's entirely contrary to what we do. And so they will not be convinced. But you, you, if there was a means by some magic, magical method by which we could gain some traction in that community to, to at least allow them to do what they want, but encourage them to allow us to do what we want, um, you know that that would be that would be great, but I just their politics are such that they're <laughs> they really don't want to they don't want to work with us. You know they don't want to mutually cohabitate. They would really like to see our entire belief system go away, and and I think unfortunately we're seeing that across the board politically as our our two nations become more tribal all the time and people are retreating to their own corners and they're not talking and, and that's why i always tell people share your meat you know if you kill if you kill a deer or elk share that meat especially with somebody who's maybe never tried it or doesn't hunt um be a good ambassador for what we're doing and that's going to yield benefits not not just to maybe us as individuals but to us as an entire community yeah, well said, Don. And, uh, you know, the solidarity point really resonates. And I think, you know, we have to do a good job of looking out for each other. I think our wild sheep community, we do a great job of that. And we just need to, as hunters and, and hunter conservationists, we need to really get on that same page. And um, so on that note, that kind of leads us to um, what can we do um, to support California? What's going on down there? Just talk about your local chapter, what we can do, um, a little bit of membership stuff. I, I'm a life member, obviously, as you know, um, but what's going on fundraising wise? How can we support California and make sure we keep the sheep on the mountain in, in your state? Well, I, right now we just wrapped up our fundraiser. We had a very uh, successful uh, virtual event. Um, I, I was really happy with how it came off. I thought our production value was pretty strong. Uh, I thought it was entertaining. Um that silly haircut stunt uh, that we did. Uh, we're gonna, it looks like um, the haircut alone, we're gonna do 19,000 on the haircut. Wow. Nice. Um, 
So, and, and the way the challenge funds and matching dollars shaped up the, the split, we actually had more challenge matching funds on the, on the Galad side, on the give a lamb a drink side. Um, but I think it's going to, the breakdown is going to be somewhere around 7,500 for the children's leukemia foundation. And then the balance for give a lamb a drink, which is that's half a drinker. You know, these drinkers are about every time we build one of these, it's about 25,000. Um, and, uh, so we did really good, uh, just with that. And, and we had a lot of generous people that donated directly to give a lamb a drink. You can go, people can go to California Wild Sheep's website, cawsf.org, click on shop now, and you should be able to make a donation to give a lamb a drink at any time. And, uh, and that is a tax deductible donation for U.S. citizens. Um, and, uh, and going forward, uh, we, are, we do give away a sheep hunt every year to a life member. Next year, we are planning to have a live event. And so the old rules will be in place that you must be a life member and you must be in the room. You have to attend because ultimately, you know, we learned a valuable lesson from, I believe it was Washington chapter. Uh, those guys up there, Glenn Landris, Brian Bailey and others, uh, they really kind of pioneered that concept of life member drawing must be in the room. And it, it really grew their event uh, wildly. Uh, and I, I remember a couple of years ago, they asked me to host their event. And at that time it was the biggest dinner I had ever hosted. It was like 600 people. It was a big audience. We had a great time. Um, I like doing those big shows. Um, but so we've got that going forward. If you're not a life member already, it's, uh, it's a good time to become a life member, especially if you're within a, you know, if you're in the Oregon, Nevada, Arizona area, or you have a hub that uh, have a, a airport that flies direct to Sacramento, it's pretty convenient to get in and out for a weekend. Um, it's it's a great event. That's going to be next year, I believe, first weekend of May. Um, but yeah, easiest way is just go to the website and you know throw throw five or ten or twenty bucks at uh, give a lamb a drink, and then you know just watch our Facebook page. Uh, we also give a lamb a drink on Facebook. Uh, we do some summertime kind of short little auctions and giveaways and stuff with, you know, so it's always kind of keep an eye out on us, uh, social media, Facebook, as well as Instagram, California wild sheep on Instagram. Uh, and then watch my page as well at donald.c.martin on Instagram. Um, and cause I'll normally also plug, whatever the chapter is doing to try to drive revenue to our program. We're, you know, we were at a time not that long ago, we, we were a chapter that didn't have very much money and, you know, or, you know, we had, a, actually, I take it back. We had, we had quite a bit of money, but we didn't have any projects. Well, now we have, we've gone, the pendulum swung the other way. Now we literally have almost unlimited projects. Um, so now we have, you know, we have this drive, to try to generate this $3 million necessary to build these drinkers that are going to double the number of desert bighorns in California. So we're, we're really driving towards that goal. Um, and, and we're working with SCBS as fast as we can. And, and given the brutal summers down there, when we're emergency water hauling, we really have a kind of a short construction period, you know, let's say November to March, April, that we can build these things because uh, 
it, it's just not feasible to try to build one of these projects when it's 120 down there, you know, and I tell people, look, you know, if you, if you aspire to hunt a desert bighorn and, and is on your list or you apply, um, just understand it, it takes 10 years to grow a great big giant sheep. That's, that's 10 miserable hot summers down there that those rams got to tough it out uh, to, to become a 170 class sheep. So, you know, it, it just, at the end of the day, it boils down to water, you know, which is kind of a funny way to put it. Um, and especially when you're so close to the Inland Empire in the Los Angeles area that continues to keep poaching more and more water out of the water table and trying to harvest fossil water. You know, we've been in a political fight over a, a project to drill a super well and tap one of the aquifers and pull two billion gallons of water out of there a year. It, it's just it's a constant fight, you know, but that's been the case in California for our entire history. California's entire state history is is often revolves around water. Um, and so uh, that fight still continues and we're fighting for water for wildlife. And if if we can't save existing fossil water, then we need to capture the rainwater in the winter and store it in these man-made Tanahas, you know, these natural uh, areas in the desert that capture and hold water. Uh, th that's that's our best hope to preserve what we have and to grow what we have and provide greater opportunity for not just California residents, but for everyone who aspires to, to hunt sheep in, in the state of California. Right on, Don. Yeah, fantastic, man. Well, hey, I know we've taken a bunch of your time here. Um, and I just want to say from... BC and Wild Sheep BC, you know, we're, we're super thankful for all you do for us up here. You're always keeping an eye out for us. You're always looking out for us, supporting us. You're our guest speaker this year at our conservation event. And um, we're hoping we can have you up here for real. I know you're flying all over to these states for these events. So we're going to get you on an airplane and get you up in Canada once we can get back together. So we're, we're really excited about that. But um, I just want to say thank you for all you do not just here in BC, just across the entire wild sheep community. You're, you're an inspiration, just a, a, a tireless advocate for wild sheep and conservation and for hunting. And uh, we're certainly grateful to have you as uh, on our side. So thank you for all of that. Well, and thank you, Kyle. And thank you, Steve, for inviting me to, to talk with you guys. Uh, great time. Uh, and thanks Wild Sheep Society of BC. You know, I've, I've tried to support both uh, the Northern and Southern chapters and, uh, you know, first first time I ever went to Canada, I went to Kelowna for the chapter affiliate meeting um, there in BC, and it just just great experience, and met a lot of wonderful people, and everybody just, uh, uh, you know, I was a nobody back then. I mean, literally, I mean, nobody knew who I was, but you know, uh, <laughs> Rob Rob Kopecky, Chris Barker, every everybody I met up there just treated me uh, really great, and I. You know, I, I'm proud to be a life member of uh, Wild Sheep Society of BC, and I appreciate all you guys do for hunting and conservation up there. Really appreciate it, Don. Have a great day, and uh, thanks again. Appreciate it. All right. It. Thank you, guys. Have a great day.